Father, we are so very grateful for giving us your word, knowing it is profitable for what to believe, to rebuke, to correct, to train in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know, too, as we obey it, we're blessed, as you tell us in James 1. We thank you, too, for Christ, the living word, and the relationship we have with you through him. And it be our desire to not merely understand your word, but to live in light of it and how we think, how we believe, how we speak and how we act in our daily life. So our hearts are open. We want to be sensitive to you. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. There was a ruler in history who had been commanded by his superior to totally destroy the enemy nation, including men, women, children, infant, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. He chose to take 210,000 of his army as foot soldiers, but he did not destroy the king of the enemy nation, and he also kept the best of the sheep, cattle, fat calves, and lambs. After the victory, the ruler set up a monument in his own honor. When confronted, he said, that is, confronted about his disobedience, the soldiers kept the good animals to sacrifice them to the Lord. So my question is, why did King Saul completely, not completely, but at least partially disobey the voice of the Lord through the prophet Samuel? So we read scripture, he did not fully obey because he maintained at least two beliefs. He thought to sacrifice is better than to obey. And he thought to have the praise of men is better than to have the praise of God. Beliefs influence action. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk being one of those minor prophets that has much to say as far as how to think, how Israel or how Judah thought, how they responded. But Habakkuk 1, reading together verses 1 through 11. And keep in mind that God has been pursuing the nation of Judah. They had chose to wonder time and time again. He sends prophet after prophet. And we know that the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes as we may call them, Israel, had already gone into captivity never to return, being taken over by the Assyrian Empire. We know that Judah in the future is going to go into captivity, and the Lord's response speaks to that effect. And remember that Judah had the Mosaic Law. Habakkuk is moaning, if you want to say, complaining to God about what is happening. Let's read together. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, 
O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you look at me? Or why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and petrous people, who swept across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping down to devour. They come, or they all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all the fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. The Lord is confronting the nation of Judah and has confronted them various times, but they've not been responsive, so Habakkuk laments to God. We stated last week, no, he's crying out to God. I call for help, but you don't listen. I call violent or cry violence, but you don't save. You make me look at injustice, destruction and violence and so on. And he says the law, you know, the Mosaic law is paralyzed. It's like it's not having any impact in your chosen people. And I would pose a question and I'll answer it in just a moment. Why even listen to a passage like this? Beliefs influence actions. Action influences character. And character influences eternity. So as we think about this nation that is going to come and take over Judah, it's a nation that the Lord is raising up, and the Lord is responding to Habakkuk's question, but he's doing something that he says, be utterly amazed, I'm going to do something in your day that would not believe. And he clearly states in verse 6, and we stated this briefly last week, I'm raising up the Babylonians. And the Lord is speaking. He's raising up a nation, the Babylonians. The Lord writes history in advance and then fulfills it. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now keep in mind that Deuteronomy 28 would have been in the context of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. 
They have received the Mosaic law. Moses is about to be taken out of the scene. Joshua is going to take over. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. Before they go into the promised land, these are some things that Moses shared. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 49. And this is in the context of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the old or devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine or oil, nor calves of your herds or lambs of your flocks until you are ruined. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. Again, in the context of a curse for disobedience, the Lord is speaking to the effect that And this is many years before the Babylonians came, that they will come. You will disobey, but I'm sending this nation. Habakkuk speaks, and he's asking the Lord questions, and the Lord says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. He spoke about them hundreds of years earlier. The fulfillment of Habakkuk comes some years later. But the Lord writes history, and he fulfills it. Isaiah, long before Habakkuk's time, and Jeremiah, a contemporary with Habakkuk, spoke of Babylon being used by the Lord to judge Judah. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 a few books before Habakkuk. Daniel chapter 4 taking place after Habakkuk. The time in which Judah would have been taken into captivity and King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging God's control over the affairs of people. Daniel chapter 4. Begin with verse 34. At the end of that time, after living as an animal for seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases, the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here we find Nebuchadnezzar speaking after the time of Habakkuk, and he acknowledges God's sovereignty over the affairs of mankind. 
before Moses said, I'm going to raise up. Referring to the Babylonians. Habakkuk lamenting to God. And the Lord says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Then we come to Nebuchadnezzar and he looks back. And he acknowledges God's sovereignty. I briefly mentioned last week, popular theology in Habakkuk's day, the Lord will not allow Jerusalem and his temple to be destroyed. Popular theology in Judah, but also thought by other nations. Theology of that day, the Lord will not allow a more evil nation than Judah to judge it. Now let's take our Bibles and go to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5. Just to get a feel for the thinking of that day and where the nation of Judah was as far as their response. Jeremiah chapter 5, and I'll pick up with verse 12. They lie about the Lord. They say he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see the sword or famine. The prophets are but wind, and the word of the Lord is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. Now the prophets of Israel, of Judah, were saying, He will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see the sword or famine. Look at chapter 6 of Jeremiah in verse 14. Well, we'll start with verse 13. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Again, the leaders of Israel crying that. Go over to chapter 7 of Jeremiah and verse 1. Jeremiah 1 and verse or 7 and verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is a temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, We are safe. 
safe to all those, or safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Now let's go over to Lamentation. The next book, Jeremiah, then Lamentation, chapter 4 and verse 12. Lamentation 4, Lamentations 4 and verse 12. Jeremiah is lamenting to God. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the world's people, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Judah had the belief. We're God's chosen people. Jerusalem is God's holy city. The temple is where the presence of the Lord is. We'll never be touched. And apparently other nations had the same thought. But yet, the Lord says, back to Habakkuk now, I'm raising up the Babylonians. There was a belief that God would not, could not let Jerusalem be destroyed or the temple. But yet he says, I'm going to do something that will be, you'll be utterly amazed that you would not believe. See, their thinking had a certain pattern. No, we can develop beliefs sometimes that are not quite on target. And they'll influence our lives. And we'll cover a few of them a little later. But in verse 6, I'm raising up the Babylonians. And then he gives a character of the Babylonians. He says they're ruthless in verse 6 of Habakkuk 1. And the idea of ruthless is an emotional response to a destructive, heart-crushing situation. The Babylonians created heart-crushing situations when they came on the scene because they had an evil heart. They're impetuous. They're bent on violence. In light of verse 6 and 9, quick to shed blood and practice evil without thought. He says they're a law unto themselves. They promote their own honor. Anything about God and the Mosaic law would have been totally ignored. And if you do a little reading, particularly some of the rulers of Babylon, just cruel men. And think about King Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted people to bow down to the image that he had made. And what did he do? They didn't bow down, and he immediately had the furnace heated seven times hotter And the men who were throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace died from the heat. Just decided to do it. It would be like President Trump tomorrow morning decide, you know, I don't like four of the people in my cabinet. Pulls the trigger four times. You say, he can't do that. Nebuchadnezzar was like that. 
We don't seem to be able to identify fully with that because we don't live in that type of culture. But a law to themselves. An illustration of that, years ago when Ruth Ann and I and Danny and Beth were going to Guatemala and also Peru. We ended up going to Peru first and then later to Guatemala. You had to open your suitcases and they wanted to root through it and find some things. We didn't speak Spanish very well. They didn't speak English very well. But a couple of things in our suitcase, they pointed to them. We knew what were they saying. We want that or you won't get through here. So what do you do? Give it to them. They were law unto themselves. Well, they're not supposed to do that. Law unto themselves. That's what the Babylonians were like. He goes on. Their own strength is their God. They're self-sufficient. They had a mindset of we can. He goes on to describe their motivation They seize dwelling places, not their own, in verse 6. The end of the verse. Verse 7, the latter part of the verse, they promote their own honor. And we're dealing with a cruel nation, and a nation much crueler and evil than Judah. Why would God allow a more evil nation to discipline his chosen people? That comes to Habakkuk's mind. But the Lord goes on to deal with the action of the Babylonians. They were powerful. They were evil. But notice what is stated about them. They sweep across the whole earth in verse 6. They're powerful. When you think about Babylon... Going back a few years ago, of the Babylonian kingdom that came and took over a lot of the then known world. Babylon coming over into Israel, down into Egypt, sweeping over the land. And the Babylonian kingdom, just in terms of you know, geography today. The Lord goes on in verse 7, they are feared and dreaded. The word feared means an awesome, deep dread inspired by an awesome army. Dreaded means an emotional and intellectual response to evil, an anticipation of evil. And I want you to think about a situation today. Suppose you have a teenager, a girl, that has been abused physically and sexually by her father, even before she was a teenager. And she sees this as a pattern. And every time dad comes around, what does she face? Dread. There's an emotional response, even as she thinks about her father. 
the Lord is describing Babylon as feared and dreaded. They have size. They have power. He goes on in verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards. They have speed. In verse 8, their cavalry gallops headlong. They're brave. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. Power. Do you ever watch an eagle or some other bird, but an eagle? Do you ever see an eagle swoop down and take a fish from the water? Taking that unsuspecting fish. Babylon. They fly like a vulture swooping down to devour. They come bent on violence. That's their purpose. Violence. They gather prisoners like sand. I'm sure you've been to the beach already. Your kids, or maybe when you were a kid, you take a bucket and you fill a bucket full and you're going to build a castle or something. I dare you to count how many pieces of sand are in that bucket. It says they gather prisoners like sand. Just gathering multiple prisoners. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at fortified cities. Remember, fortified cities, you have a wall and you think you're safe. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Build a ramp so they can get up over the wall and go into the city or besiege a city until the city gives in. They laugh at fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. They sweep past like the wind and go on. And the Lord says, guilty men whose strength is their own or their God. Now get the picture. We have Judah, God's chosen people. He has pursued them. He has given them the Mosaic law. He has delivered them from Egypt, brought them into the promised land. Ten of the tribes have already been taken captive. The two southern tribes, Judah, as they are called. As Habakkuk laments about the evil, the Lord says, I just want you to know that Babylon's coming, and I'm going to use Babylon to discipline them. Habakkuk doesn't like that. As we'll see next week, he laments again in the end of chapter 1. But as we think about what we've discussed to this point, some possible applications from Habakkuk. It's not wrong to question the Lord when we don't understand. However, as we question the Lord, we must be willing to listen listen to him, believe it, and live in light of it. The psalmist lamented to the Lord. Habakkuk is lamenting to the Lord. And you find other people in Scripture have lamented to God. But be willing to listen if you're going to lament. Don't lament and then listen with a desire to judge God. 
but a willingness to accept and respond. Another application, choose to live with your head in the air rather than in the sand. At times we're afraid to admit reality. Habakkuk is at the point of, Lord, I've lamented to you. I see what's happening. I'm living with my head in the air. There's violence. There's injustice. You tolerate wrong. There's destruction. Conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed. What's going on? The Lord responds. But he's not afraid to admit reality. Sometimes we're afraid to admit that we're struggling. Sometimes we're afraid to admit what's happening in our nation or in the body of Christ. The freedom to come to God and say, God, here's where I am. But yet, a willingness to listen. Don't ignore reality. Habakkuk's not. He's saying, God, violence? Why don't you save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Very, very open with God. Sometimes are we not like Judah, who did not live in view of the Mosaic law? Our nation has a worldview which lets God, lets God and His Word out of their thinking. The worldview in America basically is one of evolution, along with some other things, many or Eastern religions also. Thus, no one is accountable or responsible. You know, our nation kind of lives like Judah. We probably should not be overly alarmed. But don't be indifferent to it. Don't be afraid to talk to God about it. If you watch TV at all, and you read newspapers and watch movies... Most of that is a no-God worldview. When was the last time you listened to the news and at the end of the newscast, the reporter said, now please stop and ponder. The Creator God is sovereign. He's in control of world events. So don't worry, trust Him. I'm not knocking news. I'm just saying we live in a world that just lets God out. Refuse to place God in a box, thinking you have him figured out in every situation. He responds differently than we expect. For example, could the Lord destroy America? Would God allow Iran to overtake America? Not suggesting that's going to happen. But to even think that is like Habakkuk thinking the Babylonians are going to overtake Judah. Just couldn't fathom it.
when we think about God and figuring him out, why do we try to get out of trials when the Lord wants us to mature through them? Again, I'm talking about taking God at his word. Don't put him in a box and saying, God always fixes. God doesn't always fix. If he did, we would never die. God wants to use trials to build perseverance and character, and that gives us hope. If we're not careful, we put God in a box and say, God, I'm in this trial. What am I to do? And God says, I already told you. What do you mean you told me? Well, I say in my word that you're to rejoice. But God, I don't want to. You either obey or disobey. See, we can put God in a box and say, get me out of this. When he says, rejoice. Habakkuk was tempted to put God in a box. How about God always heals? Paul went to God and God said, I'm not going to fix you. Paul asked three times and the Lord said, I'm not going to fix you. So Paul says, I glory in my infirmities and so on. God fixes sometimes, but he doesn't always. Could the Lord get along without the money and the belief or believer power in America? Is that possible? Would God's kingdom go on? If the greatness of Christianity in the U.S. was just gone? You say, ah, it might be hard for him. Now again, are we putting God in a box as Judah put God in a box? Now this next one is a little more lengthy. Evil and calamity do not exist independent of the sovereign rule and redemptive purpose purposes of God. But this truth is apprehended only by faith in God as he reveals himself. The calamity that was going to come to Judah did not exist independent of God's redemptive purpose. And as we think about World events today, God is on the throne. He is working, bringing about the redemption, ultimately, of this world. The sovereignty of God does not eliminate human accountability. The time of accounting accounting merely varies. Babylon will give an account to God. But as we think about God and his work in history, calamity does not exist independent of the sovereign rule and redemptive purposes of the Lord. There may be calamity, but it's tied in with redemptive purposes. Again, thinking biblically. One final application. Just as theology that the Lord would not destroy Jerusalem was popular in Habakkuk's day, we may take false or questionable theology, theologies in America today and use them. One is, 
If I take my children to church and teach them the Bible, they will grow up to love God. If I do those things, how many of us believe that? Now, there's things there that are not mentioned. We didn't talk about the example of the parent. We didn't talk about the parent teaching or anything else. But I'm just saying, I've heard over and over again, but I took my kids to church and I've taught them the Bible some. Where's God? Theology influences action. What we believe about God makes a difference. There's a revival coming in America. I can't argue that there isn't. I would just say, say, show me in Scripture. And you probably would say, I can't, or someone else would say, I can't. Well, then let's not be too dogmatic in it. But again, theology influences action. The belief that bigness is a sign of God's blessing. Well, something's big, God must be blessing. He may, he may not. God may bless something small. Can't put them in a box. Again, what we believe about God makes a big difference. The bigger, the better. Something big is better. And something even bigger is better than that. Really? Do you find that in Scripture? But yet, a belief system that is very strong, and I'm not knocking bigness. I'm not talking bigness in any specific area. I'm just saying that's not a, something that's taught in Scripture. How about this one? Sickness shows God's discipline in me. If I've heard it once, I've heard it hundreds of times. When someone is sick, what am I doing wrong? What's wrong in my life? Sickness is not always discipline from God. It may be at times, but it's not true across the board. Again, theology influences action. Something I had to wrestle with years ago when I was basically a picture of health and then I walk out of the surgeon's office and the surgeon says, I want to operate as soon as possible and he wanted to operate three days later. And he said, expect the worst. God, what's wrong with me? I had to wade through all that. Sickness is not always a sign of God's discipline. Another one, financial hardship shows sins in one life. What am I doing wrong? I'm having some financial hardship. I must be sinning. Not necessarily. But again, theology influences action. Financial hardship shows sin in one's life. Then the majority of the Christian world must have a lot of sin because they're having financial hardship. Again, Habakkuk is very, very relevant for the day and age in which we live. How do you need to change your thinking, if any? 
How do you need to be encouraged in thinking well and biblically as you live? Let's take our hymnals and turn to hymn 118, Faith of Our Fathers. Again, reflecting back on people who had faith, Habakkuk had faith. He was willing to question God. But singing together, verse 1 only, a faith of our fathers, thinking of people who have lived before. We have a scripture today. We can think and we can reason today because of those who have gone before.